Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Back in the West, part one. By the time iconoclasm was taking hold in Constantinople, most of the former Western Roman Empire had been lost for a long time. Before much more time passes, the Eastern Empire is going to find that the barbarians who took over the Western lands were barbarians no longer. Civilization was returning to Gaul, to Britannia, to Germania and to Hispania. The peoples inhabiting northern Gaul in particular were about to show themselves to be genuine rivals. So, let's see what's happened in the major parts of the West since the fall of Rome. In Britain, the Roman withdrawal had a terrible effect on the wealth of the lands. Villas were abandoned and urbanisation ceased. Production fell through the floor and the political makeup of the island fractured. Spoken Latin died out quickly in Britain to be replaced by various British dialects. By 500, there are innumerable small kingdoms. There is virtually no written record of the situation. By the late 6th century, the Angles and the Saxons had taken hold of much of southern Britain. It's said that a local British warlord king held the Saxons back for a long time. Maybe there's some truth in this, although very little evidence exists. Either way, it's from this that the legend of King Arthur was born. By 700, the Saxons had pushed the British to the edges of the island, confining them to the areas now known as Wales, Scotland and southwest England. The tiny British kingdoms, particularly those in Wales, combined and became larger political entities. Still though, they were relatively small and not at all powerful. The Anglo-Saxons had arrived in Britain by sea from various parts of Germany. The language they brought was a Germanic one. As they settled in England, they formed small kingdoms and incorporated the local British people into them. By the end of the 6th century or soon after the beginning of the 7th, the small kingdoms began to merge into more powerful political entities. By the end of the 7th century, the number of kingdoms had shrunk further until just four remained. Kent in the southeast, Wessex in the south and southwest, Mercia in the Midlands and Northumbria in the north. The four kingdoms were ruled by kings, supported and often opposed by aristocrats. They converted to Christianity and thus the church became a powerful institution. As time went on, the rivalries between the kingdoms increased and conflict became inevitable. In the late 8th century though, the four kingdoms coexisted along with the British kingdoms of Wales, Scotland and the South West. It must be acknowledged that Britain was a fairly underdeveloped, backward place. It was ripe for invasions by a stronger force. The potential invaders though had other things to occupy them. The invasion would eventually happen, but not for 250 years. Spain, as we know, was conquered partially by the Vandals in the early 400s and then taken over by the Suevi and then invaded and conquered by the Visigoths. In 483, King Euric repaired the main bridge at Merida, the Roman capital of Hispania, and consolidated Visigothic power. The Visigoths were headquartered in Gaul, however, and they were rocked by defeat in battle there by King Clovis. In 511, a child, Almeric, succeeded to the throne. Theodoric the Ostrogoth established a regency for the boy, and thus Spain was effectively ruled from Italy for 15 years. After Theodoric died, Almeric became ruler in his own right. There followed a series of weak kings which resulted in civil wars. It was as a result of one of these civil wars that Justinian found an excuse to establish a bridgehead in Spain and thus regain some of the territory for the empire. Visigothic Spain was inherently unstable. It was often ruled from outside the territory, either from Italy or from Gaul. Also, the very nature of the geography made communications difficult. Keeping control over the entire region was virtually impossible, 
and many autonomous communities coexisted with their Visigothic masters. On the north coast, for example, the Vascones held sway. They spoke a language similar to modern Basque, which is spoken today in the same region. Spain, though, remained very much more Roman than Britain. The old structures and old ways of doing things stayed in place far more than they had in Britain. The system of taxation didn't collapse as it did on that island in the north, and the church was already well established in Spain. The Visigoths were Christians. Into this slightly chaotic political but relatively stable social world strode a king called Leovigild. He galvanised his forces and set upon a path of reconquering all of the autonomous areas and bringing them back under central control. He was so successful that by the time he died in 586, only the Basque region and the strip of southern coast controlled from Constantinople remained outside Visigothic control. Leovigild established his capital at Toledo and set about unifying the churches in Spain. He and his people were Arians, but much of the population was Catholic. He only partially succeeded. As we know from the various attempts by the emperors in Constantinople, getting doctrinally opposed Christians to agree to a compromise is virtually impossible. After the great conqueror's death, his son, Recared, gave in and converted to Catholicism. This was a wise move, as the local population vastly outnumbered the Visigothic population in Spain. Spain remains almost exclusively Catholic today. The next 50 years were characterised by a large number of coups as rulers were overthrown regularly. During this time though, the Eastern Romans were defeated and pushed out of Spain for the last time. The Visigoths also fought against the Franks and the Basques. As the century wore on, the church became even more powerful. The second half of the 7th century saw legal codes implemented, some by the church and some by the kings. The kingdom was more internally peaceful. In 711 though, Visigothic Spain fell apart. An Arab and Berber army swept in from North Africa and overtook most of the region. Some Visigothic power bases remained, as some local leaders did deals with the Arabs, but most of Spain would remain in Muslim hands for the next five centuries. In the north, smaller kingdoms emerged with independent kings. Spain suffered what Britain could have suffered, invasion by an outside force. Visigothic Spain was stronger and more developed than Anglo-Saxon Britain, but it fell while Britain didn't. The Visigoths were unlucky where the Anglo-Saxons were lucky. There was a powerful invader ready to take Spain. There wasn't one there to conquer Britain. The situation in Italy was complex. Once the peninsula was lost to the empire, it would be 1400 years before Italy was once more united. Not until 1871 would it be unified. A federation led by the Lombards invaded the northern part of Italy in 568. There, various kings and dukes did some deals with the Byzantine emperors, including Tiberius Constantine and Phocas, leaving the empire in control of some parts of Italy, while they ran the others. Most of the Lombard possessions were inland, while the eastern Romans held Rome, Ravenna, and most of the other significant ports, and a large part of the southern end of the peninsula. The Lombards gradually took more and more of Italy, until in the mid-700s, the empire remained in control of just Rome, Ravenna, Venice, Naples and some coastal areas in the tip of Italy. Roman traditions, laws and culture were so deeply ingrained in Italian minds that the Lombards did not seek to destroy it, but used it to manage the territory. The greatest of the Lombard kings was called Leoprand. He reigned for over 30 years in the first half of the 8th century. By the time he died, the Lombard king was the overlord of all of Italy, even though some of it remained in Byzantine control. As we heard in the last chapter, Ravenna was taken in 751 and Rome was forced to pay tribute. 
The Lombard rule over Italy was never secure though. The Catholic Church was still based in Rome and wielded much power. When a certain Pepin the Short became King of the Franks, he sought ratification of his position from the Pope. This was granted and thus the King of the Franks was in debt to the Pontiff. He repaid the debt by invading Italy and handing territory, including Rome and Ravenna, to the Pope. And this brings us neatly to the situation in Gaul and Germania. In the post-Roman West, one may have expected the Goths to be the ones who created a maintainable state. After all, they'd lived among the Romans for a long time and learned a lot about government and infrastructure. It was they who tried to mimic Roman methods most closely as they sought to manage their new territories. As we know though, the Ostrogoths in Italy and the Visigoths in Spain both failed to maintain lasting control over their lands. It was a people from the north who succeeded where the Goths, Lombards, Burgundians, Suevi and countless others failed. The Romans first encountered the Franks during the crisis of the 3rd century. They were a confederation of Germanic tribes who caused some trouble in Germania and Gaul but had never been seen as one of Rome's greatest foes. Various Frankish tribes found themselves in control of northern Gaul as the Western Empire fell. The fact that they rose to become the most powerful people in the old Western Empire is primarily down to the work of one man. Clovis was the son of a Frankish king called Childeric I. He conquered a number of rival Frankish tribes and became master of all of northern Gaul. He then established his authority over the Alamans, successors of the Alamanni, and captured the area now known as Aquitaine from the Visigoths. By the time he had completed this in around 507, he was in control of three quarters of what had previously been Roman Gaul. This was a sizeable territory in the immediate post-Roman world. Clovis also converted to Catholicism. The great king ruled for 30 years, dying in 511. Given the state of play in most areas at this time, one may expect that his gains would be lost over the years following his death, but his successors continued his successes. By 550, the Franks had taken the Burgundian kingdom and were recognised as overlords by the Bavarians in southern Germany. Frankish lands stretched from Orléans to Paris, Reims, Metz and Cologne. Thus they were the first to rule successfully on both sides of the Rhine, something even the Romans never managed. The ruling dynasty, founded by Childeric and consolidated by Clovis, is known as the Merovingians, after Childeric's father, Merovech. It would last nearly 300 years unheard of during these unstable times. They became known as the long-haired kings as they left their hair uncut while the bulk of the population did not. The 50 years or so after Clovis died were marked by fighting between his sons. Despite this they began to be noticed and were recognised by the Byzantines as being there to stay and to some extent legitimate rulers of Gaul. The Frankish lands were briefly united under Clovis's last surviving son Clotar I. When he died in 561, another period of infighting occurred between his various grandsons. The next time the kingdom was united was under Clotar II in 613. His son, Dagobert I, maintained this unity until his death in 639. Despite the fact that the unity was preserved, three regions developed. Austrasia in the north, Neustria and Burgundy in the centre and southeast, and Aquitaine in the southwest. Each of these regions had a Maior Domus or leader of the household. This was generally a senior aristocrat and the position became a very powerful one. When Dagobert died, he was succeeded in Neustria and in Austrasia by his sons, who were both children. They too were succeeded by children. Under these circumstances, the Maior was even more important. By 687, most of the actual power was wielded by these Maiores. 
Almost all of them were members of a single aristocratic family, the Anulfing Pippinids. They soon became kingmakers, choosing pliant members of the Merovingian dynasty as puppets. The Maoris began to fight each other as the position became preeminent. In 717, Charles Martel defeated the others and established himself as the sole Maior. He abolished the court of Neustria and became the sole focus of rule. Over the next 20 years, the kings became an irrelevance. Charles eliminated all potential rivals to his power base. For the last four years of his life, he ruled without a king. He died in 741 and was succeeded by his sons, Pepin and Carloman. There was a brief revolt in 743 and the brothers installed a puppet Merovingian called Tilgeric III, so there was at least a figurehead. Carloman retired and went to Rome to be a monk in 747, and Pepin, known as Pepin the Short, was in sole charge. In a masterstroke of audacity, he wrote to the Pope, Zacharias, asking if it was sensible the King of the Franks had no real power. He got the answer he wanted. The Pope informed him it was better for the one who had power to be called King. Thus Pepin took the throne in 751, the first Carolingian king. Pepin dispensed with the whole king's having long hair thing and all his followers wore their hair short and had tidy moustaches. Pepin was anointed as king by Boniface, Archbishop of Mainz, and had his kingship ratified by the new pope Stephen II in 754. This gave his rule legitimacy, but was, in reality, a coup. Still, it stuck, and Pepin's rule was strong. Immediately on receiving the blessings of Pope Stephen, he repaid the favour by invading Italy twice, keeping the Lombards at bay. In 765, Pepin further enhanced his relationship with the church by instituting compulsory tithes. He also organised at least four church councils. As we heard in the last chapter, Pepin continued to support the popes and ensured that control over Rome and other territories remained in papal hands. Pepin died in 768 and was succeeded by his two sons, one was called Carloman II. The other was, like his grandfather, called Charles. He was known as Charles Magnus, initially to distinguish him from his own son, also called Charles. It wasn't long, though, before this epithet was applied to him for his huge charisma. Soon, the nickname, which actually meant the Great, was absorbed into his own name, and Charles the Great, Charles Magnus, became Charlemagne. The new sole king of the Franks was enormously tall for these times, over six foot four inches, and massively strong. He was also intelligent and cunning, but could not read or write. Charlemagne transformed the fortunes of the Franks. They had been lucky to have had two consecutive exceptional leaders in Charles Martel and Pepin. The fact that these two were followed by the even greater Charlemagne was more fortunate still. From 772, Charlemagne set out to conquer and absorb Saxony. The Saxons were pagan, and Charlemagne, once he had control, introduced a programme of Christianisation. The Saxon aristocracy was well treated by the Frankish invaders and settled into the ruling class well. Thus there was little rebellion from senior Saxons. After an invitation from Pope Hadrian I, Charlemagne marched into Italy and subdued the Lombards even more effectively than his father had done. Although Italy was always seen as a separate political state, it became part of the Carolingian domains. Charlemagne took the title King of the Franks and Lombards. By the late 780s, he had also brought Bavaria under his direct control. In the 790s, Charlemagne moved east and inflicted a heavy defeat on the Avars. This didn't result in more territory, but the amount of treasure captured and returned to Frankish lands was immense. Charlemagne founded his own capital at Aachen in 794-6. to 
By 800 AD, Charlemagne and the Franks had acquired territory which stretched from northern Gaul to southern Italy and from Catalonia to Bavaria. It was in the year 800 that he did something else which would horrify the Eastern Romans or Byzantines. It was in that year that the Pope bestowed upon him a new title. And next time, we will find out what that title was. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.